Well, it's hard to believe two weeks from today, actually two weeks from last night, we start Surprise, our Christmas series. And I, I think I've done 32 Christmas series here at New Spring. It's the biggest one I've ever done. So uh, I got it. It is so funny. It was like God just like gave it to me in like five minutes. And so we're just really looking forward to that series uh, because each weekend we're going to talk about a different surprise that God has for you in the Christmas season. But today and for actually the next two weeks, I want to talk to you about generosity because this is a really important topic especially as our culture grows more and more narcissistic. And let me just say the nasty little secret is American Christianity is becoming more and more self-focused. So let's talk for a few minutes. I mean, if somebody were to draw your picture as a cartoon character, if someone was to create a caricature of you, and of you with your hand out, would it be closed as if to say, what is mine is mine, and I'm not a generous person? Or would your hand be open as if to say, I am a generous person. Because see, here's the thing. I think we all are one or the other. We really are generous or we are not generous. And so I just want you to think about that. You don't owe anybody else an answer on that. But I do think all of us need to answer that question. And here's why. God, I'm always reminding myself of this. God can never put anything in a closed hand, nor can he ever do anything through a closed hand. God, and that's the key. God wants to do things through you. And so that's the question I'd like for us to start with today. Okay, let me just give you three verses about generosity in which God makes statements. Uh, Because at the end of the day, our talk is going to revolve around our generosity with God. So let's look at these three statements. This is one that from my youth has been important to me. In Psalm 112 verse 5, the Bible says, good will come to him. It's a generic term. Good will come to her. Good will come to the person who is generous and lends freely, who conducts his or her affairs with justice. Surely he or she will never be shaken. Now, I love two statements in there that stand out to me. The first statement is, good will come to the person who is generous. Who is saying this? God. He is the one who manages futures. So the Bible is saying, God is saying, good will come to the person who is generous. And I love that last statement. That person will never be shaken. Hey, do you feel shaky in the world that we live in today? I've gotten to where I just don't watch news anymore because it's so shaky. It's shaky politically. It's shaky geopolitically. It's shaky as far as uh, world governments. You know, it's just a shaky time. It's shaky in regard to relationships. And yet the Bible says the person who is generous will never be shaken. Let's look at this in the next verse. Proverbs 11 says, give freely and become more wealthy. That's very important because our culture believes the very opposite. The culture believes, hey, get all you can, can all you get, set on the can. That's the idea of the culture. You know, it is, hold on, it's mine. That's the only way I will ever become wealthy. And yet this is one of those delicious Jesus ironies. The Bible says, give freely and become more wealthy. Be stingy and lose everything. The generous will prosper. Now, I'm nervous about that term because some of us are familiar with a form of religion called the prosperity gospel. That's an oxymoron. But I'm not talking about that. I mean, there's the idea that if you give to this, this television ministry, then you're going to be driving a Rolls Royce. That's nuts. But the term prosper there simply means that your net will be a plus. You will have outgo, you will have income, but the Bible is saying a generous person will always show a profit. And then the Bible says those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. Okay, now let's talk about the verse that we're going to focus on for the next two weeks because here here is the American concept 
of generosity, and it's fatally flawed. So we're going to like come face to face with that for a moment and ask ourselves the question, am I truly generous, or do I have a sort of sappy 21st century postmodern American view of generosity? That view of generosity that I just referred to has this idea, if something moves me, and if I'm in a mood, or if I see something on Facebook that touches my heartstrings, then I will be generous. That's not generosity, that's impulse. I'll, let me show you how God defines generosity. Look at this. Generous people plan to do what is generous. They're not impulsed into it. Generous people plan to do what is generous. And they stand firm in their generosity. I am really trying to make sure I absorb those two concepts because the, so oftentimes there's a feeling of generosity that if I have anything left after I spend everything I want to spend on me and I pay everything that I need to pay, if I have anything left, then I will be generous. Well, the problem with that is it's not a strategic plan. And then the second problem, as we just saw with that verse, is that typically we will let it slip away. We don't stand firm. So the Bible is saying generous people have a strategic plan for being generous, and they stand firm. They don't let the circumstances of life alter their generosity. Well, this morning I want to take a few moments to talk to you about our generosity with God. Because it's a very important concept in the Bible. I want to say two things real quickly that will sort of bring, I think, focus to our viewing audience, whether you're here in the North Auditorium or South Auditorium, or if you're watching online, if you're watching on television. First of all, I'm talking to God followers today. So if you're not yet a God follower, you have much larger issues to explore and think about. And then beyond that, I especially want to talk to New Springers today. So if you're part of another faith fellowship, then maybe you can take what I'm talking about today and you can utilize it where you worship God. But I want to talk about our generosity with God for just a moment. Now, um, up here on the stage, I have a pie. And um, we have New Springers, Mike and Donita Miller, and they own a restaurant in Yoder called Carriage Crossing. And they have the greatest pies in all the world. Now, we're told that in heaven, everything is going to be far greater than it is here on the earth. But I really think if there's anything from the earth that will make it to heaven, it'll be some of the carriage-crossing pies. (laughs) You know? And, and so I was thinking about this because we're talking about our generosity with God. And so as I was thinking about this talk for the weekend, I thought, well, well, if Jesus came to my house, what would I serve him? What, what, would I, what would I put before him? And, and it was pretty easy. I thought, well, I'd, I'd want to serve one of Mike and Donita's pies to Jesus. And so Mike helped me out with this, and, and he, he, he brought me a pie, and this is a chocolate cheesecake pie. And, and what is different about this than the normal slice of pie that you would get at Carriage Crossing is, is that because I asked him to, Mike sliced this into 10 pieces. Because scripture tells us that the tenth belongs to God. And so because of that, uh, in the, in the, the Bible never tells us to give the tithe. It always says bring the tithe. So let's think about that for a moment. Um, if Jesus came to my house, I definitely would want to give him at least what is his. So, um, and this is kind of scary because I've never done this. I've never cut pie until the four o'clock service last night. So um, let me get Jesus piece of pie out. I've already made a mess here. Okay. Well, y'all pray for me now. Okay. Ha! 
How about that? So um, here's Jesus' piece of pie. Now, the thing about this is kind of interesting because when you start exploring American Christians' giving patterns, um, we discover some things. Like, for instance, we discovered that the poorest 20% of American Christians give God consistently 3.4% of their income. Now, that may not be a tenth, but I don't know about you, but I think that does, I mean, not that we're going to applaud today, but when you think about the poorest 20% of American Christians, they have so little left over that for them to give consistently 3.4% of their income, and that's an average, so you've got a lot of the poorest 20% of American Christians that are giving a, bringing a tithe, I'd say that's pretty remarkable, wouldn't you? And we would understand. I mean, the fact that it's not a full 10%, we sort of understand that because this is the poorest 20% of American Christians give 3.4% of their income. But here's the thing. A lot of us are not in the poorest 20%. We might even be closer to the highest 20%. Now, the highest 20%, of course, I mean, there would be so much more left over, wouldn't there be? I mean, after all, we could understand, and, and we would understand why Christians who make in the 20%, lowest 20% would only give 3.4%, but man, the highest 20%, they got way more left over, so consequently, what do you think? 6%? Maybe 7 The wealthiest 20% of American Christians give 1.6% of their income to God. So, I got Jesus at my house. Hey, Jesus, it's too much. It's too much. I've got to work on your piece of pie here. So, um, tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to get this down to 1.6%. And that, and you see, that, that tenth is too much for you. I love this sermon. <laughs> I get to preach this. This is, this is the third out of four times. So, I'm going to put... I'm going to put my 8.4% uh, back in, back in, because this is mine. I got stuff I got to do with this. And so, Jesus, here's your piece. But you know what? That's an average. So, what that tells me is there are a lot of Christians out there that are basically giving Jesus an empty plate as if to say, here's your piece. That's something to think about, isn't it? Well, let's talk about that for just a moment because the thing of it is, when we begin to talk about our giving to God, the question can kind of come down to, well, well, why do I even need to think about this? You know, Adrian Rogers, who was my mentor, and he's with the Lord now. He pastored what I thought was America's greatest church. And I still don't know why he found time for me, but Adrian told me years ago, he said, you can always measure a person's Christianity by two books. And he wasn't talking about the Bible. He said, you can always know whether a person truly follows Jesus by their checkbook and their date book. Good, good statement. So let's think about this for a moment. I mean, what does the Bible have to actually, what does the Bible say about bringing our gifts to God? In Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, the Bible says, bring the whole tenth into the storehouse. So there you have an amount, tenth, and then you have the point or the place where it goes into the storehouse where the seed is presented. Now, there are those who say, well, wait a minute, that is something that was part of the Mosaic Law. No, actually, it was something that predated the Mosaic Law by hundreds of years. In the book of Hebrews chapter 7, the Bible tells us about Abraham. This is back in Genesis 14. Then Abraham took a tenth and gave it to Melchizedek 
And then in Genesis 28, verse 22, we have Jacob thinking about the place where he brought the tent. He said, this memorial pillar I have set up will become a place for worshiping God, and I will present to God a tenth of everything he gives me. And then in the New Testament, the church of Corinth was challenged, on the first day of the week, each of you should set aside some income and save it to the extent that God has blessed you. But what I draw from those things, if I were to make these bullet points, it would be, I should have a place of worship, a storehouse where seed is presented. I mean, church is not like a salad bar where you can sort of hop around and and decide what you like or don't like about one. You need a place where you can truly be a God follower. And, And there are those who say, well, wait a minute, Mark. The church is like all of God's followers everywhere. Not yet. It will be someday. The word church means gathering or assembly. So there's no such thing as a universal assemblage of God's followers yet. There will be in heaven. It exists in microcosm. But the church today is a place where God's people gather and they do things like minister to kids and minister to junior high and minister their gifts to change the world like we did in Houston with the hurricane or the Bibles that we've sent to the Middle East and all those kinds of things. Those things are done by a local assemblage, not by some sort of mystical um, idea of all of God's followers everywhere. And then this gift is to be presented where I worship. So why? Why would I think about bringing a tenth of what I make to the place where I worship? Or even, I I just really believe that God is mostly concerned with consistent giving. So let's just say someone is here today and you say, Mark, I don't even believe I could start with the tenth. But let's talk about just being consistent. Why is it important to be consistent in our giving to God? Well, let me give you my reasons today why it's been a part of my life since I've been a teenager. And I will never know what you give. I deliberately hold that information back from myself unless someone wants to share it with me or in some specific situations in regard to leadership. But I will never know what you do with this. But I want to share with you why I bring consistent gifts to the Lord, and then you can work this out in your own thinking. Here's the first reason. I love my church. You say, well, Mark, of course you do. You're the pastor. But I love the history of this church. This church started, people ask me sometimes, did you start the church? No, I'm not that old. Um, It started when I was in the fourth grade in Texas. I love what it was then. I love why it started. But yesterday, I was walking through the concrete of our new nursery building, and I thought, you know what? I'm not sure I'll even be around in the future to see this building fully engage the culture and the community. I love what it's going to be in the future. I love my church. New Spring is changing lives. You know, at Judgment House, which we just finished last week, do you realize we had 1,679 people give their hearts and lives to Jesus Christ? That didn't happen. That didn't happen because of empty plates. That happened because God's people had a vision. I love this about New Spring. New Spring, we're very conservative financially because we have determined a long time ago, kids are going to be the most important things that, that happens here. Let me tell you a little nasty secret while a lot of churches don't have that focus. Kids are the audience that bring the least and cost the most. And so consequently, a lot of churches won't focus on kids like we do. But we determined a long time ago that we were going to be a church that focused especially on kids and on people who weren't spiritually resolved. And because of that, we've always been very conservative financially. I mean, we're building on almost $3 million nursery out here and realizing that babies don't tithe, right? <laughs> That's part of our internal culture. And I love New Spring. It's what makes this church very, very different. 
And, you know, and I, I mean, let me just do this. While we've talked about that, that nursery, we now, I didn't, I didn't get to see this until Friday night. We actually have a video that kind of shows the new building. It's only about a minute and 45 seconds. Can we watch that together? Let's take a look at this. Here's a look at a new day in the Bay. Our building expansion project designed to create more space in Baby Bay, our environment for children under age two. We broke ground on this building project in June of this year, and we're on track to finish construction in mid-March of 2018. This new building is going to provide us with so many great features for our little ones, including secure but transparent environments and an indoor play structure kids can enjoy no matter the weather. We'll also have more space to separate Baby Bay into smaller age ranges, which will give us even more of an opportunity to craft an experience tailored for these young ones' levels of understanding. It's going to bring some conveniences to the whole family as well, including eliminating congestion during parent checkout and having less of a walk for those who park in the west lot, since we'll have a brand new entrance on that side of the building. At New Spring, Baby Bay isn't simply a nursery. Along with loving on and caring for these babies, our skilled staff and dedicated volunteers are teaching even our youngest infants that God made them, God loves them, and Jesus wants to be their best friend through Bible stories, crafts, activities, times of worship, and more. We believe it's so important to invest in the next generation, even the youngest of our children. So we thank you for your support and for partnering with us to create this safe, fun, creative space for our new spring babies and toddlers. Wow, that's gonna be awesome. We had almost 500 babies for Easter. Isn't that great? Wow. And so we, we would love to have it by Christmas Eve, but we won't have it until next spring, but we sure wanna have it in place by Easter. Um, let me just be straight with you because I love straight talk. We're, we've been paying cash as much as we can for this building. And we're a million dollars in between being able to pay cash for this building and having it. So I, you know what? I believe that we have the ability as a collective body to raise that. So I, I give consistently because I love my church. The second reason why I give is it identifies me among God worshipers through the years. When you study the Bible, you'll discover that God's people who worshiped him were givers. I read, we talked about Abraham a few moments ago. We talked about Jacob. Jesus told a story, or we have a story about Jesus, where there was a woman who gave two days of minimum wage, and Jesus said that she gave more than everybody. And I think about the Christians in Macedonia that Paul talks about, that even though they were poverty-stricken, they gave what they could afford, and they gave beyond what they could afford. Now, here's what the Bible says. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Every week, Mary Alice and I have our tithe and our offerings, and we give electronically, actually, before we get to campus. But the thing I love about it is it puts me among God followers. We may not be the greatest, but we're among them. We're among people who truly worship God. The third reason why I give consistently is that consistent giving allows me to give more. I'm always amazed when I get my statement at New Spring at the end of the year to look at the total amount that Mary Alice and I have given because it looks like a big amount. On any given week, I could not write a check for that amount, but by consistently bringing my gift, I'm always amazed at what God allows me to give. I look back and realize there were years I did not even make as much money as we have the privilege of giving God today, but I couldn't do it if I didn't do it week by week. You know, um, just being straight today, I remember we had a guy here many years ago, and he had a high-paying job. Um, and he, he loved to sort of like throw his checkbook around. 
And, and so there would be times when he would like, if he found something that caught his fancy in kids' world or worship ministry or something, loudly, so to speak, he would say, I'll just write a check for that. I'll just write a check for that. What I never told him was there were people who made a fourth of what he made who gave way more than he ever gave because they gave consistently. So in giving consistently, it allows me to give more. Here's the fourth thing, the fourth reason why I give consistently. It's a weekly heart check. Jesus made a statement that almost feels backward to me, but the more I think about it, the more he's right. Jesus said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be. Now that's what sounds backward to me because I'm so ready for Jesus to say it the other way around. I'm ready for him to say where my heart is, that's where my money will be. You know, every once in a while, I'll get behind a car, and there'll be a bumper sticker that says, my daughter and my money go to KU. So I'm sort of thinking that's what Jesus is going to say to us. You know, where your heart is is where you will put your money. Jesus flips it, and he says the very opposite. He says, where your treasure is, your heart will follow. The more I thought about that this week, the more it hit me. That's really true. Because where I put my money is where my heart goes. For instance, let me give you a simple example of that. Outside of, outside of the Lord's work, the next greatest expense in my family is my, my mortgage. Look, that's probably true for many of you. My house. I put substantial money in my house, and I'll tell you, I'm really careful with my house. You know what? I don't like anything to happen to my house. I don't like anyone to disrespect the house. I'm, you know, cautious where the dog is at all times. You know, my heart has followed where my treasure is. And the reason why so many American Christians really don't have a lot of heart for God's work is they haven't invested anything in that yet. And Jesus is saying to us that it's a great thing for us to have a weekly heart check. Listen, guys, we have become the most narcissistic culture in the history of the free world, especially in America. And the problem today is even American Christians claim oftentimes that they worship God when in reality money is their God. And weekly when I come in here and I bring God his tithes and his offerings, I'm checking my heart. This is a a little bit of a challenging week for Mary Alice and me. We were both exhausted on Monday, which is our day off. And uh, so I told her, I said, babe, why don't you just get a nap? Just rest. And I'll watch the phones and everything. So I did something I rarely ever do. I decided to watch television. So I started, you know, flipping channels. And I'm tired of politics, so I didn't want to watch the news. I'm tired of politics and sports, so I didn't want to watch sports. And so, you know, what's left? And so I get into that band of channels, and I, get, I find this program called Selling Jets. And they saw about 15 minutes. Now, I'm trying to be a good husband, so I've watched those shows with Mary Alice where people are trying to decide among, like, three houses, you know, and trying to make up their mind. And so I've seen a few of those, but this is like people trying to decide which private jet to buy. So, well, I'll watch a few minutes of that. In this particular episode, there was a young college-age girl, and her daddy was going to buy her a private jet to fly her back and forth from home to college. So she was there trying to make up her mind which jet she wanted. Now, there were two jets, if I remember correctly. There was like a Learjet that it had, some, it had some years on it, but it was in great shape, and it was like $2 million. And there was a newer jet that had all the best technology, and it was like $6 million. And so her dad was telling her, no way can I afford the $6 million jet. I'm not going to pay that much money. You know, the Learjet is fine. 
And she's like on the phone basically yelling at her dad for his unfair treatment of her, pawning off on her the $2 million jet because it didn't have Wi-Fi capability. And here were her words to her dad on the phone. I promise you. She said, I've got to be able to do my homework. Now, how many of us, you don't have to raise your hand, how many of you did your homework in college without a private jet (laughs) that had Wi-Fi? And I'm sitting there going, are you kidding me? This girl is crazy. And then all of a sudden, two questions came to me. The first question is, if I had grown up in her home, would I be like her? Well, that wasn't a comfortable question, but the second question really rocked me. The way I am right now, is that how I would look to a poor person in Africa or Asia who's living on poverty? Because you see, although I don't have to have Wi-Fi on my private jet, I mean, that $2 million jet is many times the cost of my house. But you know what? I, I can have, we have to have certain surfaces on our cabinets, and I have to have certain kinds of floors, and I have to have certain, I have to have certain options on my car. Would I look like that girl to someone who lived in poverty? And that's why you and I need a heart check. And the great reason for giving to me, this fifth reason is, is so, the fourth reason is so important because it's a weekly heart checkup. Let me give you the fifth reason real, real quickly. The Bible says that consistent giving is important, and I understand that because it means I understand that God's work goes on daily. You know, for those who give only from time to time, what they fail to understand is that God's work goes on 365 days a year. Around 20% of Christian families give consistently, and they fund 80% of God's work. Now, what's strange is oftentimes Christians will give if the mood strikes them or if a situation catches their interest, but the idea of giving consistently is something that they don't engage in. I've heard this story many times, but I'm thinking about a specific story years ago. We had a couple who was going through a divorce, and they, they did eventually divorce. And the guy would not pay child support. And the wife had custody of the kids. And so he was what we would call a deadbeat dad, never paid child support. But on Christmas, he would like to give the most extravagant gifts to the kids. And he would come off looking like a great dad, but he didn't pay their light bill. He didn't pay, he didn't pay for their food. He didn't pay for their clothes. He didn't play, pay for the non-sexy things that the kids had. And what I love about consistent giving is it means that I understand that God's work goes on year-round. Hey, could we dream for a moment? Have you ever thought about what would happen if all people, I mean, the Bible tells us that Christians are people who understand that Jesus paid for our sins on the cross. He's forgiven us. He's given us a brand new life. What would happen if all Christians in America brought the tithe? Not not if we brought like, you know, 90%, but what would happen if we just brought 10%? What could we do in five years? Well, first of all, we could just pay for every church project in the country. It'd be nice. But not only that, we could pay for every mission project around the globe right now. I had a great lunch with a friend of mine, and he was telling me about what's going on in India and how Christians there are being persecuted. So in five years, if, I mean, it'd be $165 billion. So in five years, we could pay for every church project. We could pay for every mission project. But how about this? We could end world Hunger. Now, these are not 
people who don't believe in God. These are people who are Christ followers. If we would just bring one-tenth of what God has given us, not only could we fund every church project, not only could we fund all of global missions, we could end world hunger. We could end world illiteracy, and we could provide clean and safe drinking water for the entire world in five years if all of God's people would bring what God says belongs to him. As I get ready to close out this message, the sixth reason why I give consistently is I want to be blessed. Now, the moment I say that, I've heard people say, and I hear still hear people say this this day, I don't think you should ever give anything to God expecting to get in return. I guess that's okay except the fact that it's 180% opposite, 180 degrees opposite of what the Bible says. Listen to what God says. We talked about in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus' statement earlier. He said, if you give, you will get. Your gift will return to you in full, overflowing measure, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, and running over. Whatever measure you use to give, large or small, will be used to measure what is given back to you. Now, that's a long verse. There's only one word about giving. Everything else is about what you receive. So let me just tackle this pseudo-religious concept that you should never give to God expecting to receive in return. Here's the problem with that. We've invented a religion that goes like this. When it comes to motives, faith and trusting God and receiving from God is down here, and sacrifice is up here. So consequently, if I give expecting to receive something from God, that's a very low motive. If I give, on the other hand, just out of pure sacrifice... And and you know what? The weird thing is I never believe people who say that really give because once you give to God, you'll discover our next point that you can't outgive God. But the truth be told, God's not interested in sacrifice as much as he is interested in faith. The most important thing to God is your faith. And so the Bible tells us that we should give expecting to receive from God. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, the Bible says, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough to receive it. Every time God challenges us to give, it's always enjoined with what we receive. In fact, the only time in the Bible that God ever says to test him is when it comes to giving. God is saying to anyone who's yet to tithe or even give consistently, let's say it's 3%, let's say it's 4%, God is saying, try me, test me. Now, you know, and any time we talk about this, there's going to be tension in the room, and I feel it even today. There are people that feel like, I mean, it's like... I'm not going to do this because I'll be in a deficit situation. So let's play with statistics. Facts are our friends, aren't they? I used to have a great friend here. He's in heaven now. He was the longest serving judge in Sedgwick County. Paul, Paul Clark used to say to me, facts are stubborn things. Let's talk about facts for just a moment. Let's talk about people who tithe statistically. And there's no income variation on this. So this would be from the poorest to the wealthiest. But people who tithe in America, 33% or debt-free, in contradistinction to the rest of the population of which 10% are debt-free. 80% have no outstanding credit card balances. 74% of people who tithe owe zero on their cars. 48% own their houses. You say, well, man, what about people who give like the 10%? Aren't they like, 
aren't they like missing the other 90%? 77% of people who tithe don't give 10%. They give between 11 and 20%. And 70% tithe off the gross. What do they know that the rest of us don't know? They know that God can be trusted. It's not about money. I mean, if you have the idea that God is trying to get his hands on your stack, that's not the point. I mean, the fact of the matter is in heaven, the streets are paved with gold. This is all about trusting God. And so consequently, I mean, how can I say that I trust God with my eternal soul, but I don't trust him with one-tenth of my income? How does that work? How does it, how does it make sense? I don't think I brought a talk on tithing in two years. But two years ago, I did. I love this sermon. <laughs> now, the week after I brought the message on tithing, I heard a lot of stories of people who brought their first tithe. Businessman here let me know that he had been blessed with $300,000. But that, I can't access that. That's over my head. But I got a letter from a new springer. And if I don't, this is the, well, let me just read this to you, okay? This is from two years ago. Hello, Mark. The title of her message is New Spring Saved My Life and Now I Tithe. Couldn't help but read that. <laughs> I've been a blessed member of New Spring for the past four years. It's no coincidence that I'm also a recovering alcoholic with four years of sobriety this month. Yay. I was 26 years old on a self-constructed map to the grave. It happened so fast that I can't even tell you how in a matter of a few years I went from being a hopeful college student to actually being homeless and living outside. But that's addiction at its finest, I guess. Your messages, my faith, God's promises, all intertwined with AA, has taken me on a fantastic ride. I work some really grueling jobs at minimum wage. I, against my self-entitled pride, live with my retired parents for a year to try to pay off some debt. And just as I've learned by doing the next right thing and trusting God, life continued to get better. Consistent work, not even hard work, really, just showing up each day sober helped me get promoted a couple of times. I paid off more debt, started saving, got engaged, got married, picked up a competitive running again, picked up competitive running again, started volunteering for the Humane Society, and finally finished my degree from KU. It's funny how that if you drop out of college with one class left, they still expect you to pay your loans, graduate or not. And here's where I come full circle. I'm now a little stingy with my money. My husband, who's come further than I in sobriety, spirituality, and finances, has really inspired me to not be a slave to debt. At 30 and 32, we actually have six months of backup savings, no credit card debt, and we're nearing our goal to have 20% down payment for our first home. I carry a handwritten budget that is made out from now until May of 2016. My budget has little wiggle room, and as I'm committed to paying off things quickly and saving, it's what God would want, right? Well, my idea of tithing was the money and time that I give to volunteering at AA and the Humane Society, so deep down I had a hang-up about giving money to a big church. Well, this past weekend didn't come off that way at all either. It only showed me God's sense of humor because you addressed all of my recent concerns, cough, cough, excuses about not tithing. After the service concluded, I walked over to the kiosk and entered my information. I had my donation number in mind, but had talked myself down an extra $10 after looking at my budget that morning. As if someone else's hands took over, I entered exactly what I'd originally planned on the fearful extra $10 included. So what if I run out of gas next week? I like long walks. After church, we had to run by Walmart. 
As we were making the long jaunt to the entrance, where the people that park a half mile away to avoid door dings, guess what I found stuck to the damp asphalt? There it was, a tightly rolled up bill so compact it looked like a smashed cigarette. Like a cheetah on the hunt, I pounced for the money. Unveiling its value, the air escaped my lungs. A $10 bill. Did you know that the $10 bill is the least circulated currency? I didn't, but I thought that was interesting. Did you know that the $10 bill is the least circulated currency out of the 50, 20, 10, 5, $1 denominations? I would have been less excited if it were a 50. That $10 represented the fear I had moments earlier at the kiosk. This was not a coincidence, and it certainly wasn't luck. It's him letting me know not to hoard my earnings. I cherish materials and money because for a while I had none. And everything I now have was earned from scratch. But without God, it, it truly doesn't matter. Just because I can't see the finish line doesn't mean I should stop running and wait for a bus. Trust the process. Trust his word and enjoy the view. I'm always amazed that New Springers are better preachers than I am. That's good. And I give because I want to be blessed. I'll close with this one. The seventh reason why I give is you can't outgive God. God will make sure of it. In fact, Jesus put it this way. He said, whatever, and I'll paraphrase, whatever size shovel you shovel out to him, he'll turn around and use a bigger shovel to shovel back to you. If you use a, a spoon to shovel out to him, he'll use a shovel to give it back to you. If you use a shovel to give to him, he'll do a land mover to, he'll use the land mover to shovel it back to you. You cannot outgive God. Hey, I've been doing this since I was a teenager. And I've discovered that you can't outgive God. Because God is always going to outgive us. There's a verse in the Bible that probably helps put this in perspective better than anything else. Because as I say, we don't speak much about this at New Spring. And yet I think I let you down because the truth be told, this is God's way of you changing the world and then him blessing you. So I need to talk more about it, I guess. But the thing that I think is most important for us to understand is that in the sense that you can't outgive God, certainly he will bless you more than you give. But I don't think we can really understand how great his giving is to us. In the word of God, the Bible says, thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. I want you to think about something for a moment. When you and I were lost in sin, God didn't give us a tenth of the pie. He gave us the whole pie. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And whoever believes in him would not perish, but ever have, have everlasting life. When I think about giving, that puts it in perspective to me. I cannot outgive God. So today, like I said, I will never know what you do. It's totally between you and God. And you can decide whatever you want to do with this message. But I think at the same time, we've got to wrestle with this. If I truly am a Christ follower, I mean, Jesus put it this way. He said, you cannot serve God and money. Isn't it interesting that he distilled all the gods of this world down to money? You can't serve God and money. In our narcissistic, materialistic age, I think it's really good for us to have a heart check for a day and ask ourselves a question. Would I be a person with an open hand? or a closed hand. God can't put anything in a closed hand, and he can't do anything through it. Thanks for being here.
Thanks for listening to A Slice of Pie.